Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. Listeners know that we explore many realms of the human journey, and some of our podcasts, including some of my favorites, delve into wisdom traditions, sometimes ancient writings or teachings that arise from a variety of backgrounds, sources that help us to focus on truths that really matter. And a lot of this boils down to connecting to something bigger than ourselves, to see that we're all part of some mysterious river of meaning, that the whole is truly greater than the sum of its parts. When I can get calm and touch that inner place of quietude, it points me homeward. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. He understood, he, he said, the temptation to violence. And I believe it. And he had to truly come to grips with that temptation and to overcome it. How Martin Luther King's civil rights movement struggled for ways to meet hate with love. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. discrimination and hatred are sometimes hidden, lurking in a person's heart if not always spoken by their lips. But prejudice was often unashamed and barefaced during the era of Jim Crow segregation in the American South. Posted signs would restrict people of color from access to public facilities. I recently came across a photo depicting that time and showed it to Dr. Vincent Harding, an associate of Martin Luther King, and now emeritus professor at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver. It's a picture of a young black man, I think at least he's young, but I'm not sure, who is bending over a very broken, dirty-looking water fountain that has the sign colored over it, attached by a pipe extending along the wall to a much more modern, adequate-looking fountain with the word white over it. The scene is from North Carolina in 1950, and it certainly is symbolic of the legally enforced segregation that was present throughout much of the South in the period up to the late 50s. And I would like to see here a man who is saying, one day this will not be, and I will be part of what it takes to change it. That is what I would like to see. And I have another image here from Birmingham, Alabama, in 1963. Can you describe this photo? I should say that I was in Birmingham, Alabama at this time. 
and saw these actions of police and, in this case, firemen using fire hoses to attack mostly the young people who were giving leadership to the desegregation campaign that was taking place there in the spring of 1963. I see them frightened. I see them hoping that they will be able, through their sacrifice, to bring about changes that their parents and grandparents could not bring about, but that they hoped for. High-powered hoses under the direction of Birmingham Sheriff Bull Connor were just one weapon used against demonstrators in the tumultuous civil rights campaigns of the 1950s and 60s. They also faced snarling police dogs, clubs, and the ordeal of being shoved and taunted by insult and epithet. Sometimes fevered mobs would assemble, determined to thwart those seeking racially equal treatment at lunch counters, on buses, and in public schools. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. All the people of the South are in favor of segregation. And Supreme Court or no Supreme Court, we are going to maintain segregated schools down in Dixie. The late Senator James Eastland of Mississippi, speaking in defiance of the 1954 U.S. Supreme Court decision mandating integrated public education. The court ruled that separate schools for blacks usually meant inferior schools. For African Americans, their children's future was at stake. But throughout much of the South, the machinery of government was arrayed against them, and violent protests would have been readily crushed by authorities. Dorothy Cotton, now living in Ithaca, New York. We were all studying and learning about nonviolence, but mostly because we were just in the throes of the action and we had mass meetings every night when, of course, we that was the theme, that was, we heard the rationale for doing what we were doing uh, in these mass meetings, and it flowed from, you know, the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Gandhi and the teachings of, you know, all the philosophers and theologians that Martin had studied. And, uh, you know, the sermons were grounded in that teaching. Somebody must have sense enough to meet hate with love. Somebody must have sense enough to meet physical force with soul force. If we will but try this way, we will be able to change these conditions and yet at the same time win the hearts and souls of those who have kept these conditions alive. A way as old as the insights of Jesus of Nazareth, as modern as the techniques of Mohandas K. Gandhi, that is another way. I met Martin King originally in 1958 when a black and white group of us from an interracial church in Chicago decided to travel together in a station wagon through the South. Dr. Vincent Harding. Trying to express 
our deep conviction that the five of us, three whites and two blacks, were brothers in faith and would not submit ourselves to the laws of segregation, which we believed were unjust laws and laws that went against our faith. As we traveled through the South, one of the places that we traveled was into uh, Alabama, and we decided that we needed to try at least to see Martin King at that point. Uh, he was still living in Montgomery, Alabama. He was recovering from a wound that he had received uh, from uh, a deranged person in New York City while he was on a book signing tour there. Coretta was very, very gracious to us when we appeared at her door saying that we'd like to see uh, Martin. She was glad to see who we were. She t went back, he was in bed, told him that there were these five strange people who wanted to see him and talk with him. He also was wonderfully gracious uh, in bed in his pajamas, told us to come in and he wanted to learn about what we were doing, wanted to encourage us. Eventually, uh, in 1961, my wife and I went south uh, for that purpose to try to be servants to the movement and teachers in the movement in any way that we could. Dorothy Cotton. I met uh, Dr. King when he came to Petersburg, Virginia, where I was living. He came to make a speech because the minister at my church, Wyatt T. Walker, invited him to come up because we had a little movement going there in Petersburg, Virginia, protesting the fact that black folk could not use the public library. I and, just, and I just find things. that astounding. I know, I know. They had a little cubbyhole down in, a, if you went in what looked like it might be a delivery door in a lower, uh, off of an alleyway where black folk were supposed to uh, enter, but uh, we couldn't go upstairs on the main, in the main library. And you could you know, ask for something and they'd bring it if they were in a good mood. But anyway, but it, Dr. King came to speak for us. Martin Luther King Jr. burst onto the national stage in his mid-twenties by successfully orchestrating a boycott of segregated public transportation in Montgomery, Alabama. The system had required blacks to sit at the back of the bus and when it was full, to give up their seats to whites. King had recently come to town as a Baptist minister after completing his doctorate in theology at Boston University. A fellow student was John Cartwright. When his home, during the period of the Montgomery boycott, when his home was, was bombed, this was during the 50s, the family dashed to the kitchen and huddle around the kitchen table and shaking and very fearful had to face the fundamental question not only of death but the fundamental question of what was the content of their faith and Martin says that at that particular time he heard the voice of God say to him I will be with you you need not fear. And he felt at that moment something that perhaps he had never felt before. He felt not just an intellectual acceptance of God, not just a kind of doctrinal acceptance of God, but a personal acceptance of God. 
Martin King grew up in Atlanta, the son and grandson of preachers. He was widely recognized as brilliant and wrestled with profound questions of philosophy and religion. Reverend King became enthralled with the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi, the Hindu leader whose shrewd tactics of nonviolence ushered in India's emancipation from colonial Britain. King adopted Gandhi's core principle. In a just cause, one had to be willing to endure jail, even physical brutality, but would hold the moral high ground by never responding with violence. Instead, protest would be registered through peaceful non-cooperation with a system that is wrong. To King, Gandhi's quest for justice and his ecumenical, unpretentious life made him a more authentic Christian than some church leaders in the United States. Dorothy Cotton served as education director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. We had to help them see that, that they were not living up to or into what they were preaching. If a white segregationist preached, you know, some of our folk were arrested in churches. I don't know if you know that. We were, even on a Brotherhood Sunday, we could get arrested in white churches, though they had just preached a sermon about brotherhood. And they never said, obviously, uh, sisterhood. I guess, so we'd have some new language now. But yes, the white preachers could preach, um, use that same language. They could quote the teachings of Jesus, but it didn't include us. It's like the Constitution initially <laughs> didn't include us. But we had to, we had to become healers. We had to become the, the, the doctors in a, in a sick uh, society and environment. And we had to help them see how wrong they were, and, but know that we wanted to listen to them. This is why Dr. King could answer these preachers who criticized him and us for being in Birmingham, Alabama, in the now famous letter from a Birmingham jail. Um, if these preachers had a heart, and we assume that everybody does, that they did have a heart, that they could be touched after they're human beings. King was, as much as anything else, he was a child of the black church in the South. Dr. Vincent Harding served as first director of the King Center in Atlanta. And he was at his best, constantly trying to take the person who was called the Lord of the Church, Jesus of Nazareth, he was trying to take Jesus and his teaching and his way of life seriously. And in that way of life, central to it was a creative way of dealing with the enemy, of dealing with those who seek to do harm. Jesus taught that while the normal approach to the enemy was to return evil for evil, that he was trying to teach something different, which he understood to be closer to the will of God and that is to meet the enemy, to meet the evil, without being overcome by the spirit of the enemy or the spirit of the evil, without mirroring the terror of the enemy by 
responding in the same way. And instead, Jesus was teaching, find a way to change the agenda, to offer another way of bringing about a new situation. When you are treated with evil, find a way to respond with good, to open new possibilities, not to follow in the terror of the old possibilities. And King, as a very creative, as a very deeply spirit-oriented person, when he was at his best, was drawn to this. And this whole way of Jesus's call to an alternative way of life was very important to him. You're listening to a Humankind special, Meeting Hate with Love. I'm David Freudberg. For more information, visit our website, humanmedia.org. Within a month of King's historic oration at the 1963 March on Washington, where a quarter million gathered peacefully by the reflecting pool at the Lincoln Memorial, he became the youngest person ever to be awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace. I conclude that this award which I receive on behalf of that movement is a profound recognition that nonviolence is the answer to the crucial political and moral questions of our time. The need for man to overcome oppression and violence without resorting to violence and oppression. Can you explain the dynamics of nonviolent resistance and how it is intended to awaken the conscience of the community as a whole, even of people who may be perpetrating persecution? First of all, let's look at the goal. Dorothy Cotton. The goal in a nonviolent uh, campaign, for example, where there are uh, very clearly there's massive opposition uh, opponents. Uh, The goal is to win the opponents to one's cause. The goal in our case was to win uh, white segregationists Uh, to our cause, to help them see the rightness of our cause. And therefore, we had to come to um, an understanding and and hold a respect for those who were dubbed as opponents. And therefore, we we had to listen to them. We had to hear their view. So we would send, for example, Andrew Young to go in Birmingham, to go over to the steel mills to talk to the leaders or or downtown to talk to the merchants to help them understand what we were about, explain the rightness of our cause, help them feel what it is like not to be able to go into a public toilet even, not to be able to use a public library, not to be able to, um, to express you know, this democratic principle of being able to be a part of governing ourselves, to vote, to go and explain it to them and hear them 
uh, and listen, really listen to their point of view, because, you know, again, we may, we may grow in wisdom if we listen to the opposition, as we also uh, used to say. If we went to, to talk with such people who were uh, dubbed as the opponents, um, we couldn't win them. Uh, go back to the goal now. We couldn't win them to our cause if we went over, hey, you know, to, to, as, as someone would say, to cuss them out, as it were. We couldn't win them to our cause if we called them names. And uh, we know that a stirring took place in the hearts of these people who heard a voice like Martin Luther King who was saying that, you know, if we are wrong, then Jesus Christ is wrong. We're working in the Bible Belt, so that impressed a lot of people who went to church every Sunday. If we're wrong, the Constitution of the United States is wrong. So, you know, with that kind of kind of um, plea, if you will, and that kind of analysis and, and analogy, people were touched, people were moved, and we trusted that they would be touched and moved. We felt it in our own hearts. The Civil Rights Movement progressed gradually, often having to rebound from setbacks dealt in court, in legislatures, and in the form of brutality by terrorists like the Ku Klux Klan. Federal intervention in the South was eventually needed to dismantle Jim Crow segregation. Moral authority for integration was affirmed by the quiet discipline of nonviolence. The day when Montgomery buses were first desegregated, the movement circulated a flyer that read, If cursed, do not curse back. If pushed, do not push back. But evidence love and goodwill at all times. Remember what it is that we are struggling for. Dr. Vincent Harding. That our goal is not to show the opponent that we can be as angry as unjust, as violent as he is, but that we have as our goal something else, something more. And as we are moving towards that something more, we're not going to be thrown off the path by saying, oh, we've got to hit them back the way that they hit us. No, we've got to keep on going towards that goal of building a new community. And if, in the course of it, they try to stop us by violence, by painful blows, what is absolutely important is to keep remembering what are we here for. We're not here primarily to defend ourselves, to show the other people that they can't do that. What we're here for is to keep moving to build a new society for our children. And we know that the new society has to be a society where people don't simply get back at each other, but are constantly urged onward to create something new. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. As you know, the Civil Rights Movement was indeed a singing movement. We could listen to uh, sermons uh, and speeches in the mass meetings. 
But everywhere in every gathering, a small or large, there was always singing. For example, if you were, you're talking about uh, nonviolence, um, and uh, taught, Dr. King taught the essence of nonviolence is love. Well, already in the black churches, um, you know, the, the people sang in the churches, I love everybody, I love everybody, I love everybody in my heart, I love everybody, I love everybody, I love everybody in my heart. We would sing that because it reinforced the notion of loving everybody, which is what we were being taught about nonviolence. And you can't make me doubt it, another phrase. Um, and then I have a lot of fun when I try to get students sometimes to um, understand the singing. There was uh, Bull Connor, you know, in Birmingham, Alabama. The, and, the sheriff. Uh, the so-called Negro movement is a part of the attempted takeover of our country by the lazy, the indolent, the beatniks, the ignorant, and by some misguided religionists and bleeding hearts. I tried to get people to sing. I even love Bull Connor. <laughs> and I remember some people working with us said, well, I kind of choked on it when you said I even love Bull Connor. And we were, uh, this was on a little march in, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. But I'm just, I'm trying to reflect on how people were touched. They were touched in many ways. We're working with human beings after all. You know, not stones. But I also remember when a man who used to organize for the Ku Klux Klan came to the Highlander Folk School to one of our workshops, and he just kind of spilled his guts, as they say, telling us how he, used to, he had his young son with him, who was a young teenager. He apologized, teary-eyed, but this man told us how he changed. We can find many examples of people being touched. In the case of the movement, Training of the mind was very important. Finding new ways of thinking about that vision of a new society, new ways of thinking about these people who didn't know that they were your brothers and your sisters, new ways of your thinking about them, constantly thinking about the prize and what is necessary to get to the prize. How close are we now to the prize? I think we answer that question best by getting close to each other. But that's a question that is best answered by people whispering very deeply to each other of our hopes and our aspirations, and our fears, and our sense of vision and possibilities, that as we can come close to each other, to let each other know what it is that really deeply cries out inside of us for something more, something new, something that brings us closer to our best selves, that then we discover how close we are. Although felled by an assassin's bullet on April 4, 1968, Martin Luther King's message of nonviolence 
is revisited each year on the U.S. federal holiday in his honor. Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal. Special thanks to Andy Lancet, Zohara Simmons, Barney Cole, and Kathy Graham. Also to Rounder Records. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, part one of Meeting Hate with Love, is Humankind Program number 111. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org, and at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.